Upstairs, we've got the virgin. And downstairs, we've got the whores. And this is right. I mean, I looked I looked up because I couldn't believe it. I looked up the years and it's just right at exactly the same time that Freud is developing his theories of um, the virgin whore complex. So I don't think Osh could have known about it. Any Yiddish speaker, native Yiddish speaker, I think has an instinctive awareness of this. You know, they don't need Freud. There's a couple of well-known Yiddish idioms. Did Freud speak Yiddish? There's a Yiddish uh, locution that you use about a, a loose girl. You know, you call her a mezuzah. Like I said, I've found evidence for this going back at least to the 18th century. You know, why is she a mezuzah? Because in Yiddish it says, Everybody can put their hand on her and give her a kiss. There is another equally popular thing. A mama is via mezuzah. Your mother is like the mezuzah. Oh. First, you hit her. You know, you see the way people touch the mezuzah when they go into a, a room or a building. So, maklopsi, first you put your hand on her, you give it a hit, and then you kiss, make up. Mm. So, you already, I mean, you've got exactly the same image being used on the one hand for a mother, on the other hand, for uh, not quite a whore, but a uh, you know, a, a sexual object. So I, I don't think Ash really needed Freud uh, to be able to, <laughs> to pull that out. On this episode of Yiddish Book Club, we read Sholem Ash's play *God of Vengeance*. My name is Eric Klein. I read an English-language adaptation of God of Vengeance. I'm joined in this podcast project, the Yiddish Book Club, by three Yiddish experts who read the play in its original Yiddish. Should you read the play as well before listening to this episode? It's up to you. We talk about the plot in detail. You can call that spoiling, or you can call it an enrichment to your future experience of the text. The center of conflict in this play really is Rivkala. That's Shane Baker. Everybody wants Rivkala. Uh, uh, the father and specifically wants specifically Rivkala's body. Yeah. And that's Faith Jones. Specifically her body. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, unlike some of the other characters, she's the one person in the play who has no agency. And that is Michael Wex. Let's talk God of Vengeance. First of all, the author is Sholem Ash. And I'm just, I'm looking at Wikipedia, so the <laughs> listeners don't have to. His years are 1880 yeah. to 1957. In, in, yeah, in, his, yeah, in his day, the certainly the best known Yiddish writer. You know, the, the, the first professional Yiddish writer, like guy who made his soul living from it, according to what I learned at one point. Yes, faith or no, or... I think that sounds about right. When I was first studying Ash in a Yiddish class about, I don't know, 12 or 15 years ago, and I said something about it to my mother, she said, did he write in Yiddish? Uh, she she had yeah. no idea he was a Yiddish writer. He was so widely translated. He was so well yeah. known. He was a best-selling well, author in English. In English, in, in French, in German, yeah, and in everything. Uh yeah, I mean, you used to go into second-hand stores. If you went into used bookstores, there'd be just rows and rows of Sholomash books, you know, hardcovers, like from the Book of the Month Club. 
and he has really fallen off the radar in the in terms of like American literature generally. I mean, well, he got replaced. I mean, it's really interesting that you know for so many years, Ash partly because I guess there was some professional jealousy on the part of some Yiddish writers, and partly because he was apparently quite obstreperous personally, and partly because he was not, uh, I guess, a super high-end type of writer. Uh, you know, he was very much like some of the great 19th century novelists in other languages, you know, Dickens or Balzac or Dostoevsky, in that he could tell an amazing story, but subtlety of prose style wasn't always uh, his number one aim, Right. let's say. And for years, people had, you know, there there were all kinds of people that didn't like him, partly because of certain controversial statements that he had made, partly because he then decided to write three volumes about Jesus, uh, <laughs> stuff like that. Always popular but with the Jews. But it's interesting that the Isaac Bashevis Singer's career began to take off uh, in translation almost immediately on the death of Ash. Right. Of 1957. And then Singer became the Yiddish writer that Yiddish writers love to hate. Uh, a position I think he probably still occupies. Uh, but he had been, you know, incredibly well known. He, you know, palled around with people like Romain Rolone and Thomas Mann and stuff like that. He had his famous villa, Villa Shalom. Uh, in Nice up until World War II. Of course, his indirect influence on American culture is quite large because his son, Mo Ash, Moses Ash, founded Folkways Records, uh, in part, I think, with daddy's money. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's definitely a major cultural figure. And like you were saying, he's kind of fallen off the map. People don't talk about him much anymore. Uh, I guess the type of novel he was writing that he was best known for is not the kind of novels that people are writing anymore, for the most part. And I don't know if they're entirely to modern taste or not. You know, periodically you see English, re English language reissues of things like The Nazarene, uh, which is about Jesus, uh, and stuff like that. I mean, I still have a Bantam paperback somewhere of volume one of Three Cities, uh, which was one of his major novels that was, you know, came out in the late 60s is that, in a mass market paperback. Is that also a, like a biblical novel? No, no, no. no. It's, uh, it looks, no, it's early, late 19th, early 20th century. Okay. And some of it's in Warsaw, some of it's in St. Petersburg, etc. And, you know, there's these parallel stories going on that eventually all come together in, in some fashion. What about, what about, it was, you know, it was a real three, three decker novel in that sense, you know, yeah, like back when they wrote the novel. 900 page novels, you know, three parts, yeah. 100 pages each small type. Yeah. What about as a playwright? How, how, what's his reputation uh, when he was alive? As far as I know, I mean, really, Gott vom Nokome is what he's known for. Mm -hmm. 
Um, God of Vengeance in English. God of Vengeance, what we're talking, vengeance, what we're going to be talking about in a few minutes. Yeah. Yeah, but there, Do, does anybody know his other of, plays? What are his other plays? He had a number of other plays that were um, successfully produced by troops. Uh, Shops at Svi, uh, for instance, and Motkeganov, which is oh, of course, a, yes. a little bit of a of a of a follow up to uh, Gottfriedkoma, and a lot of other very nice works. But Gottfriedkoma has overwhelmed everything. Uh, uh, in fact, you know, if we think of Sholomash, we kind of think of the two scandalous aspects uh, most often, you know, the, the Christological trilogy and uh, Gottfried Nekoma with, uh, with, you know, with, with this very uh, depressing view of the seedy side of, uh, of Jewish life. And he, he was kind of known for that. You know, he did first establish his reputation writing about uh, the Jewish underworld. Uh, you know, Kola uh, Street, which actually became a Yiddish term. Uh, so he had been concentrating to a large degree on the parts of Yiddish life or Jewish life that didn't often come up in respectable literature. Uh, <laughs> and had made himself quite a reputation for that. Uh, he branched out from there. He did all kinds of other stuff. And um, towards the end of the 30s, you know, as things got uglier and uglier in Europe, he began writing retrospective historical things about the beauties of Jewish life uh, at various times. In Kiddush Hashem, uh, he he's writing about uh, the reconstruction of Jewish life in Poland after the terrible pogroms in 1648 and 1649. Uh, he wrote a book uh, in Yiddish, it's called Der yeah. uh, In English, it was translated as Salvation, uh, which is practically a love song to Hasidism, <clears throat> you know, something he had absolutely no use for in his personal life. Uh, he was not a religious man, but by a very long shot. Uh, but, you know, he'd gone back to a lot of that stuff. And then, you know, some people were just starting to like him again. And, oh, well, maybe he's okay. And then he starts with the Jesus stuff. <laughs> and uh, he, had the the open, he had to open a mouth, you know. And, and much of that, I mean, only one volume of those was ever published in Yiddish. He wrote them in Yiddish, but uh, two-thirds of it was published only in translation. Uh, Goldie Morgenthaler, who's at the University of Lethbridge, I think did her dissertation on the Yiddish versions of, uh, uh, you know, of the other things that I guess she had to read in manuscript. Huh. Wes, um, do you have a favorite work of Asha's? Um, I'm actually quite partial to, to Salvation, to the Tillamide. Partly because my family pops up in it, a couple of my, my grandfather's grandfather is a minor character, uh, so that's kind of cute. But that, that's actually a pretty good book. But I, in general, I I, I enjoy his novels. Trashte, Three Cities, uh, is pretty good. Motke Gonef, uh, you know, uh, Motke the Thief. Uh, I kind of, you know, I, I don't mind them. I, I'm not as keen on his plays, I gotta say. Uh, again, Kiddush Hashem, the one about uh, the aftermath of the Chmielnitsky pogroms. Uh, 
is also, you know, it's a very sweet, very nice book that doesn't minimize the, the sort of horrors that, uh, you know, the, 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 the horrible uh, situation in which the, 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 the protagonists find themselves. It's kind of a nice counterbalance, in fact, although it was written early, yeah, maybe uh, written, by, I think, around the same time as uh, I.B. Singer's first novel, Satan and Gore, uh, which concerns, again, further repercussions of some of the same stuff. And you read the two of them side by side, and it's very interesting uh, the different takes that they have on it, while basically projecting, you know, the same uh, elegiac kind of attitude. Mm-hmm. Shane, I How think... How about you, Shane? Yeah, and I think maybe um, now's a great time to, 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 give a, to give a summary of the play. Um, sure. Uh, I might be able to do that uh, pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, so, God of Vengeance is about a... Jewish brothel owner and his wife who uh, have downstairs their business, uh, the brothel, and upstairs they have their life where they're trying to raise a respectable uh, Jewish daughter who will marry a a, a Talmud Chacham, a a rabbi, a guy who's going to be a rabbi, that's their plan. And uh, in order to kind of protect her as a kind of talisman against uh, any evil that could come, I wonder why they think there would be evil headed their way. Um, <laughs> they uh, they <clears throat> they uh, commission a Torah scroll uh, through a fellow that uh, that Yankel, the father, has found at the synagogue. This guy Rebelli. And uh, they have a Torah scroll commission and they're getting ready to have uh, the Torah scroll brought into the home as the play opens. And uh, the the Torah scribe wants to meet them and figure out who these people are. And they pass that test just barely. Um, And uh, so things could be headed on the right way, except that the daughter, Rivkala, uh, has made friends with and perhaps fallen in love with one of the girls from downstairs, Manke, who shows up at the end of the first act. And uh, they have an embrace and some intimacy while the mother is talking to Rivkala about what a wonderful groom Mm -hmm. they're finding for her. And then in act two, uh, we meet the girls downstairs. It takes place downstairs. And uh, uh, Rivkala comes down to see Manke in the dead of night, uh, but she's interrupted by her father, who's called the uncle, oddly enough, uh, who, who you know goes ballistic when he finds his pure kosher Jewish daughter, who now has a safe Torah up in her room, downstairs in their family business, about which she's supposed to know nothing. So he takes her up, he beats her, he beats the mother, and that should be an end to it. But he goes to sleep, Rivkala sneaks down, and there's a love scene with Manke, the famous uh, rain scene where they come back and uh, dry each other off and comb each other's hair. And uh, 
Manke invites her to come away with her to some place where she can be safe, away from her father, away from her mother, and that is to a rival whorehouse that one of the girls is opening. So they abscond with her. Uh, Yankel uh, finds out about it, uh, it goes even more crazy, and uh, in Act 3, uh, Sora, the wife, uh, manages to bring Rivkala back from uh, the rival whorehouse. Uh, but when they interview her, if she's still a kosher Jewish girl, she says at first that she doesn't know, and then she says, what, it was okay for you, the father and mother, to be uh, pimps and prostitutes? So, uh, yeah, now I know everything. And the father, you know, it's a question how he assimilates that, but basically... Uh, when they have the uh, kind of like a bashoung, I guess, they bring the mechutten to them, which is a little bit odd. Uh, maybe Wex can talk a little bit about that. Anyway, the uh, prospective father-in-law is brought over in an attempt to finesse Rivka's fall, but Yankel uh, says, yeah, yeah, I've got a kosher Jewish girl for you right here, drags her out, throws her down into the whorehouse, and tells the rabbi, hey, on your way out, why don't you take the Sefer Torah with you? And uh, I, I don't need it anymore. And that's, that's the show in a rather cold, uh, dry <laughs> recounting. Everybody's dumbstruck. Yeah, well, that's, uh, you would think that at the end of the play there'd be at least that much silence. You can, uh, you can see scenery being swallowed, even as it's just described yeah. cold-bloodedly. <laughs> and I guess it, yeah, I, have to, I have to pick splinters out from between my teeth yeah. every night. Well, so. and now's a very good time I know, to. I'm, I'm still mad. I couldn't get in to see it when I was in New York. It's a very yeah, good uh, coming back March 14th to. Uh, you didn't make it in. No, they in fact told us not even to bother showing up. Uh, I think it's just you specifically. Yeah, <laughs> that might have been me specifically. <laughs> I would definitely take that personally. We are recording this on Monday, February thirteenth, and um, mere mere days away from from Shane Baker uh, playing the role of Yonkel again uh, on the stage in Yiddish. So uh, that's an important uh, thing to note as we as we talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also coming right off of, as we discussed in the previous episode, coming right off of um, a couple weeks of uh, performing the play uh, live in front of an audience in Yiddish in New York City, uh, uh, Shane playing uh, Yonkel. In my translation that I read, uh, which I think you guys have called, an, yeah, adapt. it's an adaptation by Donald Mar- Margulies. Margulies. Um they call Yonkel Jack, among many other things that I've noticed exactly. are different. Um, it's also clearly shorter, the version that I read. Uh, two acts. I bet it's all condensed. I wonder what I missed. Uh, well, there's a, there's a lot of repetition in the dialogue of the play. 
the uh, uh, the English language production that was closed down that gave it the the great scandal uh, was produced by the Provincetown Playhouse here in town. The same people who produced Eugene O'Neill's plays, yeah. and it's somewhat O'Neillian in that sense right. of of repetition and saying the same thing any number of times. Of course, uh, as Wex and Faith can tell you, uh, you know, when was there a Yiddish conversation without repetitions and uh, 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 repeatings of the same thing <laughs> over and over? And, uh, and so probably a lot of that is cut out. That would lead to a shorter text for sure. Mm-hmm. And that the... The, the 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 shut down version that you were referencing just now was from the 1920s, and that was that was performed in Yiddish, right? No, in English. That, that was, was in English. English. No one cares what you do in Yiddish. Okay. Yeah, it had it had run in Yiddish in New York without any problems at all, right? Correct. Correct, yeah, and that thought. English production on Broadway that got shut down for indecency is still the only Broadway production of this play. There has never been another one. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, who was in it? Does anybody know? Uh, 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 Rudolf Schildkraut was the yeah, of course, yeah, main, uh, character. I mean, he's the one for whom Osh wrote the play. Uh, yeah, because he did it with Max Reinhardt. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't know if there was anybody else notable in it, um, but we can search the Internet Broadway database. So I'll go ahead and do that. Yeah, yeah. There, there, I don't think anyone else was too big. I know, incidentally, a uh, first cousin once removed of the girl of the woman who played Basha in that production. She used to work <laughs> oh, yeah. at the Museum of the City of New York, and she's got Xeroxes of the arrest records. And oh, really? Wow. Things like that. Yeah, and a very sad story of Aldea Weiss, uh, uh, the the woman who played Basha. She fell in love with a. Uh, a, a married producer and uh, 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 I, well I can't tell the story without her permission it's rather tragic yes. to say that she fell in love with the bitter drop as a way to get past the sadness uh. of the producer she uh, she let her career go she became a secretary and kind of died alone and uh, um, the guy didn't even show up for the funeral so <laughs> When this friend of mine wanted to be an actress, her mother said, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) And then and that version of the play that was that version of the play from the 1920s. That's so infamous. That was translated into English. Um, Who? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was Goldberg's translation. I think it was Goldberg. I mean, that that was, the you know, that's like the translation that just seems to be generally around. I know it's. It's the one in the old uh, Great Jewish Plays anthology. Should I read it? That, uh, well, it's very uh, yeah, well, you close the whole to the play. original. It's yeah. closer it's, to the original. The difficulty is the, the, the locutions, like instead of Sukkot, you know, he gave it to me at the time of the Festival of the Booths. Oh, that was for the Broadway in, audience, you know, for the uptown types. <laughs> and he likes to put in footnotes, you know, footnotes. Like whenever he gets stuck translating something, he just leaves it in the original and then puts in footnotes. And, you know, when you're actually... On stage, you can't actually do footnotes, so I don't know what use they are. <laughs> hmm. But, you know, if, if we're reading, and this is a book club, then yes, it is the translation that will be the yeah. closest yeah, to the I, original. Or, I, I think or, uh, 
or uh, 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 Landis's translation is pretty good, I think, uh, for for yeah. like an but exact, is, you know, very faithful translation. Is that did Landis himself do that? Uh, I, I thought somebody else had done it, and he just included it in that anthology. I mean, Landis was in generally in general pretty good, so. Yeah, I I did look over the Margulies adaptation, and I I quite liked it. Um, I liked the way he 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 integrated the the acts right, so that the things that happen in Act One and the things that happen in Act Two are happening simultaneously. Yeah, it's very compressed, um, like a screenplay. And I found that I actually found it quite compelling. Yeah, because how how long is the play now? When you sit, you see it. They can be done in 90 minutes, but oh. uh, that's without any breaks and with a little bit of trimming. In terms of the, in terms of the text, um, so I had never read this before, and that is, that is shameful, because just because it is, uh, for lots of reasons. And I, I, was, I was surprised at how much I liked it. Um, I guess I was expecting it to be a little bit more... Um, sensationalistic or something right um but i i didn't think it was i thought it was it was quite nice um about the lesbianism and i thought it was quite matter of fact about the prostitution and i thought it had lots of great things in it that are really um that probably make it uh pretty um comfortable for contemporary audiences and that's one thing that struck me when i was thinking about uh the production that Shane has been in as, and is about to be in is that you don't have to sort of overcome a lot of prejudice, right? You don't have to say, okay, well, he was a man of his time and there were these objectionable things, but, you know, we're going to forgive him because it was his time. You don't actually have to do that because it's really fine. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, he's a man who exploits women. And that's uh, Yankel. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's understood that that is that is what's happening, and it's it's um, not it's not glossed over or uh, or or sort of um, excused in any way. It, it does make him uh, unlikable and mean what he's doing. But to, also, to people. the prostitutes have quite a lot of agency, right? And they have their own ideas about why they're in the business they're in and what is. Um, preferable to them about that from other ways they could have organized their lives that would have made them more respectable, but would have cost them something else. And uh, that's yeah, that's, and, that's a well, pretty and that emerges take. quite yeah you know that that emerges quite clearly. I mean that whole near monologue that uh, yeah, Basha Basha Basha, Basha the yeah town gives uh, about why she didn't stay there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And how, you know, there were plenty of people willing to marry her and eager to marry her, but this wasn't enough. You know, that that life was going to be too too constricted or whatever and, for her. And this looked to her preferable. To come to the yeah, United I, States. Yeah, I loved that speech. That's an amazing uh -huh. speech. And the thing that's the killer for her, the thing that absolutely, you know, her line in the sand they wanted her to marry a butcher who smelled yeah. of blood and that's that's it she can't do it um so you know that makes it enough for her that she's she's just not going to do it and she's so much better off being a prostitute because she earns her own money and she can decide how to spend it 
I mean, the the scent of uh, the the flesh, notwithstanding, the the character is not ke flesh hacker, uh, not yeah. ke the 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 meat cutter. He's, he's uh, like a katsuf, yeah. I mean, yeah, he's, he's a I sub mean, he would make yeah. he would make a good living. It would have been a it would have been a pretty respectable uh, thing. Uh, presumably, he's the butcher's apprentice if he's the if he's the meat cutter, and uh, uh, you know it would be a good living. But it's not for her. It's not for her. That stink yeah. of uh, meat, uh, blood, and whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, this this ties in, I think, you know, to some of his earlier work. The stuff I was mentioning before, like the the stories about Cola, the Cola Gast, Cola Street, mm-hmm. and stuff, mm-hmm. where there was this criminal. Uh, stratum of Jewish society who, yeah, they were looked down on, they weren't considered respectable, but they were taken for granted as an integral part of the society. Uh, except in very rare cases, there there was a famous, I think it was 1906 in Warsaw, the Alfonsin riots. Uh, you know, one, one of the things, and I mean, this is very much... Al- Alfonsin are pimps for pimps. speakers. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, you know, uh, at this distance, we tend to forget that at one time the international white slave business was very much a Jewish, East European Jewish business, one that functioned in Yiddish, uh, and was run by and to a large degree employed Yiddish-speaking people. Uh, and, you know, that's the world that uh, the original production of this play in 1907 would have landed in. Yeah. What, so the idea of a Jewish pimp, etc., etc., this was not, like, unusual. When Sholomash wrote the play, uh, did, it, did it originally uh, take place in New York City? No, no I don't no. think it's, it's defined. None it's, of this, uh, this it's based to on, be in the old country. Uh, it's based on a short story called the Shana Marie, which takes place in Warsaw um, and concentrates on really the material from Act Two. It's about a, a pimp's or, or whoremaster's daughter who comes down to read to the girls. And a lot of the locutions, a lot of the, a lot of the phraseology, to use the music man term, uh, uh, appears in act two of the play. Uh, when he adapted it for Schildkrauts, uh, and put on acts one and acts three uh, for Schildkraut to chew up the scenery, uh, then, then he moved it to a uh, a, a sub. It's a large provincial town. town in Poland. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it says that in in the stage directions. Yeah. Who does that? So it, it doesn't take place in the United States at all, uh, in the original, at any rate. Uh, you know, this is definitely Poland. This is definitely Czarist Poland. You know, Pale of Settlement. Uh, you know, there are a couple of terms, there's one or two terms that come up at some point, which, you know, make that uh, apparent just because they wouldn't have had any meaning in a different, uh, under a different uh, system of government and stuff. Oh, interesting, because that's but, the the adaptation that I read, the the Margalis adaptation is definitely uh, in a multicultural New York City. There's Irish kids and uh, whatnot. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, no. So wait, what, what kind of... That's the adaptation. What's the... And that uh, whole, there's a whole thing about the, Jack changing his name. That's, that's not right, the original. Right, Jack. 
Um, yeah. What are, so what what's in the original that uh, what are these references to the to the Polish government? That's just there terms are that are used that wouldn't have been used okay. in in the U.S. Uh, you know, ways of describing policemen and uh, police station and stuff. Uh, they you know they they would use yeah, different words. Circle and them them Pristov. Yeah. Circle and Pristov are not American terms. Those are uh, at all. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Circle's a police station. Uh, Pristov's a cop, uh, a constable. Uh, but you know they would have said you know gay and police station are on Nema cop. So you know and it's it's very much you know like I was saying one of the things that caused Ash to be controversial from the beginning was this whole idea of you had these criminals who yet, you know, much like uh, American portrayals of the mafia, you know, I guess of which, you know, the Godfather is the, you know, the crowning example, where these guys live totally middle-class lives and have totally middle-class morality, except when it comes to their particular business uh, you know, so they're very bourgeois, mm-hmm. and they, or at least they're striving to be very bourgeois. You know, one of the things I, I read the the short stories when I was relatively young, and they totally shocked me because here you have like you know a bunch of thieves get up in the morning, and they're professional thieves, so they go to the thieves' shtibel, the thieves' synagogue, and they daven, and then they go out and steal things all day. Uh, they pray, and, and then they you know. At the, <laughs> At the time, it was like, you know, I was like, wait a minute, uh, there's a disconnect here. <laughs> and eventually I realized, no, there is no disconnect, because the point is they're Jewish thieves. Mm. And yeah. a Jew acts a certain way. Uh, you know, particularly in, you know, the more traditional older society. Sure. And that that's just what you did. But that, um, uh, but Yonkel- well, even in Buenos Aires, uh, one of the centers of uh, the uh, white slave trade, uh, uh, the, there was their a own synagogue for the for the pimps and the prostitutes. But but Yonkel, are, the, the main- I've heard stories, and I don't know if they're true of mikvahs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you definitely want to purify. Stuff. Uh, well, it gets weird because, you know, having been raised Orthodox, I know uh, ideas of when you're allowed to approach a woman and when you're not. These things die very hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Yonkel, the main uh, character of the play, uh, is not is not the kind of pimp that got up in the morning and went to went to temple with the pimps. Oh, I think I think no. He went to temple. He went to shul with everybody else. That's where he meets Ellie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you know, you know, what, you know. Wex, it's a question for me. Maybe you have, uh, maybe you were about to answer, but I'd like to kind of phrase the question that that we've been working on, which is the degree to which he's a yid for nagans yor or not, because there are basic things that he's sort of missing in his education, like uh, in Act 3, when Rivka, is, when Rivka is not yet back, you know, he addresses the Torah scroll directly, um, and it's a kind of uh, trope or motif, you know, that's the hotline to God, but he says, So, 
I mean, well, however much one might address God through the Sefer Torah, one wouldn't refer to it directly as God, though, yes. would, would one? No, uh, but I think, you know, what this is, is this is the, the obverse, the other side of the coin from all those beloved, not very well-educated folk types that pop up elsewhere in Yiddish literature who are always misquoting the Bible and getting things backwards. <laughs> Uh, this, this is basically, you know, it's that kind of religion, uh, the kind that is based, I guess, almost entirely on fear and superstition. Is the anti you know, the idea, Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, or the uncle Tevye. But uh, the idea, <laughs> you know, that by putting a safer Torah into your house, you're going to preserve whatever. You know, you're going to preserve your daughter's virtue or something like that. I mean, it, it doesn't even make sense on, I, a, on a theological basis. Can I go? I need uh, to ask. Know. I need to ask you guys to explain that pun just now that went right over my head. Oh, it's just uh, Yankel in the play. He's the uncle. Auntie, you know, Auntie Taya. The, the, the term uh, uncle is, is whoremaster, like a, 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 a mume is a madam, an ant is a madam of a whorehouse, but and a, a fetter is, is the whoremaster of a whorehouse. Well, he's, he's the proprietor of any business. Hmm. Uh, oh, really? I well, had no fetter, idea. Well, well, it's how you address an adult that you don't know their name and you're being polite. Right, so if I wanted to go up to somebody, I mean, they teach you in school, you walk up to a Jew on the street, you want to find out, you know, do the Crosstown buses run all night? And it's, you know, unschuldigt Reb Yid. And that's fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's extremely formal. I mean, it would be more, more likely, you say, unschuldigt Vetter, you know, particularly when the person is older than you. Uh, so, like, if you go into a store and the guy behind the counter, you know, you want to find out if they carry a particular item, you'd say, new fetter or new mime, or mume, if you prefer, depending on whether it's a man or a woman behind the counter. And you have a little bit of that in translation uh, with his other popular play that's a movie, Uncle Moses. Uncle Moses. Mm -hmm. Well, that's it. The fetter, a pawn shop uncle, which is an English phrase, an English term, rather. You know, you talk about the guy who runs a pawn shop is called an uncle. This, I, I think, I actually say, comes I had no idea about any of this. <laughs> I love Uncle uh, Moses. I had no idea that's why he was called uncle. Yeah, and, you know, because it's his shop. Right. Uh, so, you know, you go to the, you go to the fetter to, you know, to, to make a mashkin, to, to pawn something. Uh, and that's, you know, again, it's a fairly general term. So calling... Calling Yankel a fetter, I mean, we know it's because he's a pimp because we know what business he's in. But if he, if it hadn't been specified already, he could have been running virtually any kind of emporium. Hmm. Uh, and then you just, you know, you'd have to figure out what it was he was the fetter of. He's a businessman. A businessman, a legitimate businessman, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's the weird thing. It's kind of like this bizarre pre-satire of the Godfather. I never wanted this for you, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's very, it's it's like, very much you, like that. If you I think of that. If, 
Yeah, but if you didn't want this for your daughter, this is the thing that's always driven me crazy about this play. If you don't want your daughter to turn into a hooker, get two houses. <laughs> don't make her live upstairs from the whore. House. Well, then there's no yeah, play. But, there's no. Yeah, play. exactly. Like, like, if you, you go know, that route, she welcome up the untrodden ways, a maid whom there were few to praise. So why didn't she move? Uh, you know. <laughs> and we have no play. Uh, Wex, I just have to ask you something. It's very trivial, but it's bugging the hell out of me. Um, so there's this part where I'm just gonna—I'm trying to find it. I'm—I'm I'm trying to page through the PDF. Um, there's this part where Schleima, who's I guess there's this one of the prostitutes is named Hindala. And she she's got a. I can say who Shloima is uh, while you're while you're searching, because uh, sure. to give that summary, uh, that character is sort of a younger uh, rival of Yonkel and uh, sort of a ne'er do well. And in in the in the plot of the play, he's he's about to sort of take one of Yonkel's uh, older girls away from him to start a rival business, and that becomes the. Uh, that becomes the the other whorehouse where where Yonkel's daughter ends up uh, running away to. So so he's sort of um, I don't know. He's like he's like a shadow of Yonkel, like a bad guy in the play. Yeah, he's an aspiring uh, yeah. aspiring Yonkel. So did you sorry? What, just, what is it you're looking for? I can okay. I just tell I you. can't find the part, but it's okay. the part where he's. I think he's insulting Hindala, so his yeah. girlfriend. But he's very abusive to her. Yeah, that's not nice. And he calls her. He insults. He, there's a whole list of uh, insults. He calls her the Gellertzeug. Um, oh no, she says the Krichts of the Gellertzeug. Oh, she says, yeah, that's his other yeah. Right, she says it. Oh, that's yeah, okay. That. I was wrong. I was looking for the wrong person. Then it's somewhere yeah. here. Uh, anyway, um, he, he's yes. So he's she's complaining. That's it. She's complaining about this other woman. And one of the things he she says, one of the insults that she throws at her is that she's Chinese. Are no, we to understand that this her hair? I believe. No, oh. I think at one point doesn't yeah, she wait, actually? He calls her a chineser. A chine- I he calls her a chineser so. kid. I thought so. Uh, well, now I'm now I'm losing it. Okay, never yeah, mind. I, I don't have the PDF called up because I also had to read a PDF. So. Uh, anyway, I just didn't yeah. understand quite what was going on. So did she just? Oh, maybe she said Geller, and I thought she meant Chinese. I just meant read. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, the Red-headed slut. Reute are blonde, and and blonde are red, or something. I don't know. But Wex talks about that. But yeah, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, Gel. If you're talking about a person, a person's hair is is red hair, uh, rather okay. than blonde. Uh, at least in old. I mean, today it's probably different. But, you know, in, in older Yiddish, you talk about somebody's Igeller. Uh, you know, this is why people have the surname. Uh, it's because they were red-headed. Huh. Did that, okay, well, did that imply, is that, that is, is that the same implication as uh, in, in uh, I guess, English culture or Irish culture? You know, a red-headed stepchild? Or is it different in Yiddish? Uh, not entirely. 
not 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 entirely, but uh, red hair was I know in much of Eastern Europe considered a particularly Jewish trait, mm. uh, which I guess has to do with you know actual real genetics or something. I don't know how frequent it is amongst the other people there, uh, but you know it's a, it's a big deal. Goes you know that's why Jesus is redheaded. Uh, you know it goes back to the Bible where King David is described as having red hair. And that's why Jesus looks the way he does in standard Jesus pictures. That's a new one for me. I didn't know. Hey, Shane. Shane, are you still there? Shane. Yeah. Hello. Uh, I, I'm wondering. What do you want? I was. I wanted. To, <laughs> I wanted to bring the conversation back to you and your your acting oh, in this well, play. Oh well, I love that. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're playing the lead character in this play in in the Yiddish yeah. language, and uh, I'm I I I I asked you this uh, on the previous episode, and I sort of want to bring uh, Faith and Michael into a conversation about it, where when when you're when you're when you're playing the role instead of reading the play. Uh, what mm-hmm. what comes of it, and uh, how's it going? What well, what comes of playing the role as opposed to reading the play? Well, you have to go uh, a bit deeper into it uh, to to some degree, and some questions you don't ask, like why is the business downstairs if they're so concerned about the daughter? You know, the mother says, the, the, the Sura says, the los in Well, of course she can't go out into the street because he's got his girls right down there. Right. Um, I've got to keep her in the whore house all day so yeah. she'll be pure. You know. um, there, there are other questions that I have that, uh, you know, the, the change with directors and productions of the show. So, for instance, um, uh, I'll start. Well, well the, there's the question of discipline, you know, and men hitting women. Uh, you know, they, they talk about uh, Basha says that she ran away. Her father hit her because he found her dancing at the inn with uh, Franik, with with a Gentile boy, I presume. Hmm, that's not in my uh, adaptation, yeah. so I'm glad you brought. Well, it. there you go. That's why. That's why I said Goldberg. Uh, um, so, so you know, here's a father hitting uh, 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 a daughter. Um, now, does so? So you know, Faith talks about the agency that the women have when they're in this uh, uh, business here. But, you know, I, I don't know. Are European pimps different? Are Jewish pimps different? Is there not discipline in this whorehouse? You know, does Yankel ever beat anyone up? We know that Schleimer hits Hindle at a certain point, And we know that Yankel is a rather violent type. So I wonder, you know, to what degree Ash has uh, romanticized the lives of these women. He probably knew some like that, you know, uh, as acquaintances, as a young artist there in Warsaw, you know. Uh, and I'm not sure where it can be answered, you know, to what degree he's really romanticized things a little bit down there in in that uh, uh, whorehouse scene, you know, where it looks like it's so much better than the life 
uh, out there uh, for them and where, you know, the customer that's spoken of is this little Litvak who comes in and nuzzles up to Manka's bosom and uh, uh, wants to hear about her mother and father and uh, and God forbid there should be any sex between them. Yeah, he's such a nice uh, guy, he doesn't even want to have sex with the prostitute. He just, yeah, wants, he just so, wants to cuddle. Well, this- not not having sex with prostitutes is is a great Yiddish literature motif, <laughs> uh, which goes at least as far back as uh, Mendel Meicher's Forum. Uh, Abramo, there's uh, Shalom Abramovich was his real name. Uh, Shalom Abramovich was his real name. Uh, his major work was uh, Vinchfingerl, the Wishing Ring, uh, which is the first real treatment of Jewish prostitution by a major Yiddish writer. Uh, much of the book takes place inside, you know, a girl is like kidnapped and forced into prostitution, except she never actually sleeps with anybody. She just keeps saying no and they keep yelling at her and maybe not sending her to bed without supper <laughs> uh, and stuff. Uh, so there's you know, the, the tradition of ignoring what really goes on in these places, I guess partly due wait, just wait to censorship sort of, at the time. Isn't it in Glickle of isn't it in Glickle as well? Isn't it in one of her one of her um one of her homilies, I believe there's a woman who is uh it's not prostitution, but she's sort of um you know, grabbed by somebody uh, off the by a pirate, I think, off a riverbank or something, and and but she never sleeps with him. But it says she never slept with him. Yeah, yeah. When, she never yeah. sleeps yeah. with him. And so this no, she idea becomes that, his trusted advisor. Yeah. And because she is uh, so pure, her purity shines through. Well, when we get to Glickel, we can discuss that. But yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought of it, but this is an ongoing thing in Yiddish literature: is that somehow through some force of you know extreme piety and extreme purity, mm. you somehow can avoid actually being a whore. Because, you know, there's enough, you know, that have come down to us. There's relatively large number of prostitute songs uh, that were transcribed, uh, you know, from the prostitutes themselves. And they those ones sure don't romanticize the life that the, these people are leading. Uh, it's all about how they were generally... Uh, led astray by somebody pro who's promised to marry them or whatever, and about the brutality and the fear in which they live, uh, under which they live. Uh, so I think some of this, uh, like Shane's saying, is, you know, being played down for various dramatic reasons. You know, also nobody seems to have a disease. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. You know, it's never kids. mentioned. Right. You know, there's no kids, right? The prostitutes. None of the prostitutes have have children, right? Usually, no. career no. prostitutes would have three or four children, no matter what they were doing. Mm. You know, a few are going to slip through. So. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, so yeah. So again, you know, I odd. think you know, but I think that's you know, I, I don't think Ash was out to paint a picture you know, a documentary picture of, you know, prostitution at the time uh, at which he was writing. Right. And know, I, I, I think do it's think more the, the uh, you know, moral struggle or whatever you want to call it uh, that Yankel undergoes. So it occurs, and, you know, it occurs the to me then that, that having uh, these female characters up on stage 
was was itself um, uh, re- remarkable that there wouldn't have been uh, play, you know, roles like this necessarily, or is that is that taking it too far? Uh, well, you think to La Traviata and the plays that it was based on. Uh, th- there were a lot of courtesans and prostitutes hopping around on, you know, I mean characters mm-hmm. hopping around on stages in the you know later part of the nineteenth century. Okay, uh, so that, I don't think you know. Well, Asha's play is what roughly contemporary with Shaw's Bernard Shaw's play, Mrs. Warren's Profession. Oh, good point. Uh, which is likewise set in a in a horror house. Okay, good to know. Uh, and is even less realistic. You know, they all a bunch of prostitutes who talk like Bernard Shaw. Uh, <laughs> but in this play... Oi, give out! That's a special... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a special thing there. In this play, we have, we have one of the prostitute characters uh, as, as basically the romantic love interest of another main character. And that might be... Um, that might be yeah, a you point know, of it, departure. It's right? worth mentioning. Uh, it's it's worth mentioning uh, to that uh, degree that that the sex that does show up is, of course, uh, you know, we indicated this love scene between Manke and uh, uh, Rivkala, and uh, that's actually not the thing. I mean, just reading the play. Some people might think that you know her. I don't know if I'm still pure. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, sets Yankel off because, oh my God, she's a lesbian, you know. But this is not really the dynamic that's going on there, apparently. I mean, according to traditional Jewish law, it's not such a big deal for a woman to be a lesbian. Wex, no, a, le- a lesbian in traditional Jewish law is classified. I mean, traditional Jewish law is so... Uh, not just patriarchal, but in, when it comes to this stuff, so phallocentric that basically if there isn't uh, a dick there, it's not actual sex. Mm. So lesbians, women, you know, making love with other women, uh, a woman that does that is classified uh, by Maimonides, for instance, as a Maredes, a rebellious wife. Hmm. Uh, (laughs) It's quite a loophole. That basically she's doing this, you know, not to make her husband hot, but just to piss him off or something. It's like, She'll go with another woman just to get under her husband's skin. The, the, the main problem is that it's something that the Egyptians might do, correct? Or, or uh, uh, so there's some comparison he gives there, I think. But uh, it, it doesn't make a woman unfit to marry a Cohen, for yeah. instance. No, it doesn't. I mean, it's, it's not recommended behavior, but there's no, you know, because it's not specifically prohibited in the Torah. So it's you you shouldn't do it. But you know, there's all kinds of stuff and you it, shouldn't do according to the rabbis. The, the impre- and that already mm-hmm. occupies a lower level of prohibition. The impression I got reading the play is that um it's very childish and very sweet. Uh I wouldn't say that they uh that they had sex so much as they had a nice hug lying down at least in the version that I read. 
Uh, I think it sucks. Okay, that's nice. I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. Oh no, it's I, fine. I think, but it, their relationship I think that's is as much as he could show right. on stage, and I think we are meant to fill in the rest. Okay, We're meant to fill in blank in our heads. It's supposed to get You're a little uh, left somewhat ambiguous. What I'm what I'm trying to figure out is, particularly the original Yiddish speaking audience. Uh, you know, these people were extremely prudish. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder how many of them actually got it. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, well, entirely. Yeah. Notice it, it was not a problem to present this in English in New York, in English, in Yiddish, rather. Nobody cared. It's like Shane said, you know, you present Who cares what you do in Yiddish? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But all of a sudden it became like, ooh, this play is hot, hot, hot. When it was done in English, but the kiss the kiss um, took place in both languages, right? The big kiss. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, the the, the description of you know uh, Manka talking to uh, Terifkala about oh we were out in the rain and you got wet and I'm drying your breasts and oh look how little and nice they are etc. That's all there. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but uh, but you know, what happens on the stage is a question. You know, Luba Kadison. Uh, one of my mentors played Rivkala to Stella Adler's Manke. And when we were working on that Show World production that's in the other podcast uh, episode. 1999. Uh, yeah. Uh, Luba was talking to Carrot about it and she said, oh, no, no, you know, we, we wanted to make it a hot scene. Luba said, oh, no, no, it is two girls, two young girls who are friends and profess their love for each other. And, uh, <laughs> that's, that's, uh, well, know, that's what I was wondering. Two girls like, sitting on the stage, the, a hot love scene they did not have. <laughs> uh, today we read it that way, and I mean it's certainly supported by the text, but you know the staging of it and what they would hop from it is probably not as much as we get today. Where, uh, I, yeah, I think it'd be more, you know, Young girls, I mean, particularly Rivkala is is pretty young. Yeah, 17. Um, you know, that kind of girls' school thing. You know, you look, uh, I mean, it's a bit later, but 24, 25 years after uh, the, the first production of, of God of Vengeance, uh, the, the German movie, Mädchen in Uniform, uh, Girls in Uniform, which is explicitly about lesbianism in a girls' school. Uh, there's no way you can miss it. Uh, you know, there it's already very clear. There, there's no question uh, that this is more than you know, two two friends who really love each other. Uh, but you know, as I think the uh, temptation's the wrong word, but the likelihood that many people would have seen this as a kind of female David and Jonathan thing. And just ignored the larger sexual implications uh, can't be discounted. Right. Yeah, uh, and that makes yeah. me. That leads me to a question as to whether, when the play got everyone in so much trouble in the twenties, uh, was it because of the the two women kissing and falling in love, or was it possibly because of the um, the more controversial religious themes? This rejection of God. It's Jews. They don't have any God anywhere. It's, you know. I, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Shane, I think Shane must know 
exponentially more about. Well, you know, it's a question. It was the rabbi. It was the rabbi of Temple Emmanuel who really got the charges brought up. Ayeka, of course. Really? Um, oh, a yeah. reform rabbi. Yeah. yeah. He was jealous. He didn't know what the sacred Torah was. <laughs> um, but and 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 it was specifically desecration of the Torah on the stage. Apparently, uh-huh. that was like the main problem. But what is the desecration? You know, if you go to see indecent, they have they have Yankel throwing the Torah, which is not written in the script of the play. It is not in Asha's uh-huh. script that he throws the Torah. We should say what indecent he does is. Bring it out after saying that he would never touch it. He brings it out. He holds it in his hands and he addresses it directly with this plea to send his daughter back as pure as, she, as when she left the house and if not then then the torah is no god at all it's no god if it's nakumadic it's like a human being so you know but i mean the fact that it's shown there on the same stage with the with the prostitutes mm-hmm. and with this difficult talk i mean that in itself could probably be enough to you know, uh, 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 offend someone, you know, back in those days. Obscenity cases, they really didn't have against the theater back in those days. Uh, God for Nicole, or God of Vengeance, rather, was really the first big one on Broadway in a while. There had been some burlesque show that was closed down a few years <laughs> earlier. But after 24 is when they really start rating things, including Eugene O'Neill's plays produced by the same company, by the Provincetown mm. Playhouse, with the same producer, Harry Weinberger, uh, I believe is the guy's name, who was who was the lawyer for the God of Vengeance cast and Eugene O'Neill's lawyer and a producer with Provincetown Playhouse. So it's interesting, but, you know, uh, 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 I'd be curious about the history of uh, uh, gay and lesbian identities and how that ties into the play, you know, if people would have been aware at that time even. And we should let listeners know, just in case, uh, that Indecent is a a play that's that's, uh, about to be uh, performed on Broadway here in the year 2017 that dramatizes uh, the story of this play being put on and then being taken down for uh, indecency charges in the 20s. So it's all it's all a piece. It's a nice play. It opens April 4th for previews and uh, April 18th for uh, uh, for the run, and uh, I think it's worth seeing. Yeah, I've not. I've never seen it. Of course, I've never seen an actual production of God of Vengeance either. Uh, <laughs> Keep rubbing it in. <laughs> no, it's it's, it's boy, true. Boy, will you boy will you be sorry when you do? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, can, can I ask another question? Can, as I, long can as I can I bring you to the? Can I? I'm talking Yiddish and English. I'm going to look on. Uh, can I? Can I press charges after I see it? <laughs> They didn't throw enough safer tires around. <laughs> um, so can I ask another question, as long as we're sort of putting this into some kind of historical context? Um, I just, I couldn't help but be struck uh, by the fact that, you know, so upstairs we've got the virgin and downstairs we've got the whores. And... This is right. I mean, I looked. I looked up because I couldn't believe it. I looked up the years, and it's just right at exactly the same time that Freud is developing his theories of um, the virgin horror complex. Um, so I don't think Osh could have known about it. Um, but I just, it just struck me as being so much part of the zeitgeist at that time that um, it was yeah, sort of. I, I think. 
any any Yiddish speaker, native Yiddish speaker, I think has an instinctive awareness of this. You know, they don't need Freud. Uh, you know, there's there's a couple of well known Yiddish idioms. Did Freud speak Yiddish? Mm, probably don't think not. so. All right. No, uh, a bit of a tangent. He sure couldn't tell a joke in it. I'll tell you that. <laughs> so, uh, but not. He might have known uh, some Western Yiddish from his his youth, but I I don't think you know I don't think he was fluent or anything. Uh, but you know, there's a Yiddish uh, locution that you use about a a loose girl. You know, you call her a mezuzah, huh, uh, right. and this is like I said, I've found evidence for this going back at least to the 18th century. You know, why is she a mezuzah? Because in Yiddish, she says. Everybody can put their hand on her and give her a kiss. There is another equally popular thing. A mama is via mezuzah. Your mother is like the mezuzah. First, you hit her. You know, you see the way people touch the mezuzah when they go in and out, when they go into a, a, a room or a building. So Maklopsi, first you put your hand on her, you give it a hit, and then you kiss it, make up. Mm. So you're already, I mean, you've got exactly the same image being used on the one hand for a mother, on the other hand for uh, not quite a whore, but a, uh, you know, a, a sexual object. So I, I don't think Ash really needed Freud uh, to be able to, <laughs> to pull that out. And again, and you've also, remember, you've got the mother who is, you know, the, the parasite and all of this. Uh, you know, she's the ex-whore, right? She's the whore that moved upstairs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's a really and, dramatic moment. And it's, and, it, and it's very clear. I mean, it's explicit in the stage directions that she still has the, uh, the body language of a prostitute. Hmm. Mm-hmm. She, she has the physical presence of, of one, you know, the way she moves and stuff. Uh, that That's quite explicit. Interesting. So, uh, Eric, let me ask you, as somebody who came to this without, without the Yiddish uh-huh. and, um, and without sort of knowing the history of this play, what did you think of it? Did you enjoy this, reading this? Oh, I did, yeah. Um, It was uh, sad, because I, (laughs) just to get very weird and personal, I mean, I I don't, uh, I'm not such a bad guy compared to Yonkel, compared to Jack in my version of the play, (laughs) but I've just very recently uh, got real mad at my fifth grader uh, and really... um, I realized instantly that that I had um that I'd gotten myself worked up accusing him of uh falling into a certain sort of personality trait that I feel is one of my worst ones which is like not doing my homework and being lazy and I got mm-hmm. loud and I got mean and I I called him names and then uh and then had to just sit and think about this play which I had just read where a father um, really projects a lot of his own bullshit onto his daughter. It's you yeah. know he's the one who is uh, 
who's bad, who's who's turning other people's lives uh, upside down and ruining them, and yet here he is uh, screaming such accusations at his at his at his daughter, like like she is the one who's um, to blame for her oh, downfall. Yeah, and I I think that's the whole thing at the end, where you know you can see there's no uh, what would you call it growth in. Uh, <laughs> Yonkel's yeah. character, he's blaming the safer Toyra now. Right. Right. If you don't want your daughter to be a prostitute, uh, get out of that business. You know, he keeps talking about how he's going to, uh, you know, he's going to go respectable. He's going to be as big as U.S. Steel and, you know, uh, start dealing in horses <laughs> the way apparently his father had done. Yeah. Uh, but he never actually does that. Yeah. You know, he, he doesn't make that step to respectability. And, you know, if you look at a lot of the earlier literature, you get things, you know, particularly in like, you know, women's movies and stuff where there's a woman who has a past and has left it behind and become, you know, a respectable matron or something. And of course, the plot always turns on somebody or something from that past turns up and threatens to expose her. Uh, Yankel hasn't done any of that. You know, he expects basically a miracle. And, you know, it says it says in the, in the Talmud it's forbidden to rely on miracles, but he, he's not that learned. Uh, you know, if he was really, if he thought through what he wants for his daughter... <laughs> he would have got out of that business or at least moved to the other part of town, to another part of town, rather, uh, where she wouldn't be in daily contact uh, with it. Yeah. You know, um, and that's, you know, so he's basically, he's, you know, he's doing kind of what Eric was alluding to, uh, you know, just replicating the whole thing without, without, of course, realizing that that's what he's doing. Uh, you know, I guess to a degree everybody does. So there now, we go. In, Still yeah. relevant. In actual performances of the play, um, what comes up is uh, uh, very often Yankel uh, is, is this uh, fearsome uh, p paternal character, you know, and I guess representative of the god of vengeance, i.e. it's really just human beings that are this vengeance. But the sort of comical but also unpleasant character in the play is Rebelli, the Torah, uh, the, yeah. the, uh, the, the, the matchmaker who really knows what the laws are and nonetheless is like selling a Torah, you know, arranging to get a Torah scroll into this guy's house, right. encouraging him to cover up, you know, what's going on with the daughter, which really could be done, but Yankel doesn't necessarily understand uh why it's not so important, but uh, Rebelli uh, winds up, you know, the, there are ways to look at it that he's actually the one who's sort of responsible for some aspects of this fiasco. Yeah, uh, yeah, we haven't really talked, we haven't talked about him at all. That's good, because I, I was actually wondering, you know, clearly you write a play and it's supposed to, it's supposed to crawl into people's minds and teach them a lesson so they live 
they live life a little more self-aware when they're done when they're done with the play. So I I want to assume that Sholem Ash was trying to to tell us something about how to be good. If not if not being more Jewish and being more religious than being uh what? So uh, I mean yeah. I mean I guess I I felt really strongly that Rivka was at the heart of this play, even though Yankel probably has more stage time. I really felt that, um, you know, what's at the center of this is how Rivka is reduced no matter what she does at this point um, and how her choices are all bad choices. The choices that are available to her are all bad choices. Mm. Um, so I I don't think Ash's... Um, purpose was particularly instructive Mm -hmm. for the individual Um, I think it was probably more about um, thinking about ways in which um, you know as a a culture uh, we I don't know take away each other's autonomy um, or we um what would I say? Um, we make strong requirements on people that it's not always realistic for them to actually fulfill. The number of times in this play that different kinds of modesty requirements are made of women. Uh, you know, the Torah is present and they have to do something or other. And, you know, just all these things about these requirements um, that we make of people which uh, in which are, have various ways of crippling them. Um, I, I so that's the, what I thought the play was about. <laughs> I think that those have been uh, glossed over in the translation that I read, in the adaptation. You don't see that. I don't think there's a scene in this Margulis, uh adaptation where, where women have to change their behavior because the Torah is out. Well, Reb Eli says specifically when you, when he's there with the Torah scribe, you know, uh, you, uh, you you can't uh, speak uh, uh, improper talk in the presence of the Torah, and a woman has to keep her hair covered, and she can't approach it with mm. uh, uncovered arms, etc. Um, I, I really like Faith's point there. Um, I've been thinking about the play, and Yankel has all this stage time. Very often what winds up being loved in the reviews, though, is the women in the play. And uh, in the production that we just had up that uh, Eleanor Risa directed, they they loved Shana Schmidt's performance. Um, and it's funny because Rivka doesn't have a lot to say, even with Manka. She more often says, yeah, yeah, yes. She's responding and answering questions in this indeterminate kind of way. Yes, she wants this. Yes, she likes this. No, she's not afraid of father. Yes, she loves father. Until the end of the play, you know, then she gets some real talk, but it's just for a brief point, and she's promptly thrown into the whorehouse thereafter. Um, But she's... She is at the center of the play in a in a very strong dramaturgical way. Harold Clerman, talking about uh, directing plays, says that you want to find a backbone, an arch in a play, a dramatic arc, and it's best suited if there's one thing in the play that is the center of conflict. And the center of conflict in this play really is Rivkala. Everybody wants Rivkala. Yeah. Uh, uh, the father and specifically wants specifically Rivkala's body. Yeah, 
specifically her body. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, um, unlike some of the other characters, she's the one person in the play who has no agency. Yeah. Uh, you know, she doesn't choose to go into the whorehouse the way Basha does. Right. Uh, she's thrown into it. Uh, yeah. You know, quite literally. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, first she's sort of barred from it. I mean, the only time she shows any independence is in sneaking down uh, to see Monk. But that, you know, uh, not, nothing good comes of that, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's interesting uh, that in the beginning, goes, she's, b- before it's uh, explicitly a love affair, uh, it's uh, um, it's sewing lessons for the for the and what for the mental for the for the cover for the Torah yeah yeah and what could be more of you know a traditional female art and what could be more of a symbol of some kind of um, adoption of a uh, you know domestic role but it's there it is it's the person who can really do it is the is the prostitute right. Well, Osh talks about, in a defense that he wrote of the play in English, uh, David Mazower, who gave one of our talkbacks, uh, uh, brought Osh's own copy of the booklet, um, mm. talks about, he himself kind of glosses over any lesbian aspect to it, and talks about the attraction between Manka and Rivkala uh, as the attraction of experience to innocence and innocence to experience. Um, which doesn't necessarily rule out uh, Eros and all of that. But, you know, Manka has, she's got the experience in these kind of balabatisha things too, apparently. You know, we don't learn a lot about her past. But uh, it's... uh, She's clearly a nice person in the play. Rivkala? There are are questions. Manka. There are questions about Monkey. You know, you have Monka. to make a decision of uh, what's she doing because she's spoken clearly before with Hindle about the yeah. possibility of getting Rivkala to come to the whorehouse. Uh-huh. So is it cold seduction so that she can break away or is it out of love for Rivkala? Is it a combination of the two? Do they cancel each other out? And when that's right. like a mirroring of, of Yonkel's role as a pimp is – yeah. Is Manka pimping Rivkala or is does she love her? And Everybody wants Rivkala's body. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's you know, Shana Schmidt, who's gonna be reprising the role of, of uh, uh Rivkala, she does a fantastic job with it. She's able to play uh act one and the first half of act two as a complete schoolgirl you think she's about 12 you know you even lower than 18 she's in her 20s but her physicality the way she acts and then you know i've never seen the love scene i i don't watch it but huh. uh when she comes back on in act three she's dressed up she's got pants on because we had a modern dress version you know we'll see what she looks like in in this uh, uh in this new uh, version that we're putting up but I look at her and it's I don't recognize my daughter. You know, she's mm-hmm. she's really so the physical change, you know, it's Rivkala taking over her own self for a brief time. Yeah. It's really interesting because definitely as a reader, um, 
I put Yonkel in the center of the play um, because that's that's the he takes up the most space on the page, and it would be it would be really interesting to come out a play like this and being able to see it, being able to to see the act the actor playing. Yeah, that's Nicola the difference between occupying page space. And stage. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just holding space even even when she doesn't have yeah. lines must be something. You know, uh, Yankel wants Rivka, he wants control over her body to get her married off because uh, she'll have children. Uh, 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 they'll maybe say Kaddish for him. He doesn't have anyone to say Kaddish for him. He, uh, uh, you know, th- that's his hope. Sora wants Rivka to get married off. I think it's a way into respectability for her. She has great dreams of respectability that I don't think are so much Yonkel's. Rebelli wants her body because he can make money off of it, selling her off, you know, as, as a matchmaker. Uh, 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 and Hindle want her body. They can make money off of it, selling her off. Yeah. As, as a prostitute, Manka wants her body either because she has an interest in this new house or because she's in love with her or both. Uh, you just go through the play and everyone, everyone wants you know, this girl. Well, I, um, I was surprised at how much I liked this play, I have to say. I, uh, I, found, it, I found it quite... Um, I, I found it quite modern, and I was I was really uh, drawn to a lot of things that I wasn't really expecting to. I was really um, I, I was even really quite moved by Yankel in his in his ability to well, like Wex says, his, his inability to change. Like I was, you know, that's that's sort of the human struggle. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, one of the things about him. Uh, I think something that gets him a little bit of sympathy from the audience, you know, considering he's such a blackguardly type character, ultimately, um, they, they wanted to compare him a little bit to Trump in this last production. And it never really worked or came through. In fact, my hair was dyed for this point, but it's not long enough to make the Trump comb over. But it doesn't work because Yankel is not a liar. He's got... Uh, he, He's a, a <laughs> right. You know, he, he's he's a big talker, but he's a very honest guy. And when it comes down to the end, he's not going to sell his daughter off as a kosher Jewish girl because he doesn't know that she is. She says she knows everything, so he's assuming, I guess, that you know, she is. She's not pure anymore. Yeah. She's not suitable for the marriage, <clears throat> and this Torah thing is not for him. This cannot work. He's going to go back to what he was. The only thing he knows, he's going to be a pimp. Yeah, his and daughter you, yeah. is going to be a whore. And if you remember, a single letter uh, erased invalidates an entire Sefer Torah. Right? So there doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be ripped in half, etc., etc. And in that sense, he understands if in no other sense, he understands what a Sefer Torah is and the the equivalency that he's making between the Sefer Torah and his daughter. You know, she's it's already too late. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, there's that tiny little 
flaw and that that just wrecks the whole thing you know he's very much an absolute an absolutist in that sense yeah he wants religion to be perfect and pure Hmm. he's not a religious guy you know he's playing it to to get his daughter married off but he you know he i'm i'm a ich bin a syndica man she says i'm a bad guy Uh, but my daughter's going to be pure and uh, so when that doesn't work out. Because also that's the kapora, you know, the, the production of the pure daughter. There is the atonement for all of his sins. Right. Because, you know, bad as they were, they have led to this prodigy of purity. Right. Yeah. So she's once again, you know, she's being, you know, uh, Rivkala is going to get him off some kind of hook uh, in the next world. And of course, it doesn't quite pan out that way. Um, so in act one of the play, uh, uh, when Rebelli is trying to convince the, say, the, the Torah scribe that uh, this guy is okay to have a Torah, you know, he introduces him, he says, uh, this man has no son, so he wants to have a, 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 a Sefer Torah written to please God. Um, I, I believe that I had heard somewhere, probably from Chavalapin, that there was a, a kind of tradition to have a Torah scroll written if you didn't have a son because when that was read from in synagogue, it was a little bit like a Kaddish almost, or takes the place of it. you have anything to say about that, wax or faith? or uh... Not huge. I mean, it does say that there, there's a thing that everybody is supposed to have one, is supposed to write or have written for them a safer tire. Of course, this is a lovely tradition that most people can't, uh, can't afford. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the idea that, you know, the Sefer Torah takes the place of the child, uh, when you don't have one or, you know, when you don't have a son, but generally, you know, in a situation like this, the, uh, son-in-law would say Kaddish for him. Oh, okay. Uh, so, you know, I mean, there are all kinds of, you know, weird superstitions and things, but, uh. You know, because the other thing is, uh, a Sefer Torah is very expensive. You know, they cost a lot of money, be- partly because of how long it takes a scribe to write one. I think I think now they and cost in the realm of $30,000 or something like that. That wouldn't surprise That's me. That's a I mean, cheap one, according a real, to... You know, oh, really? A good scribe on top of, you know... All, you know, knowing what he's doing and how to ornament the letters and put the tugin on and everything else, uh, will go to the mikveh every time he comes to the four-letter name of God, which can (laughs) sometimes come up three times in a sentence. (laughs) If said cipher does not live near the mikveh, he basically, you're spending, you know, you've got to pay for his bus time. Uh, well, there's a there's a dray around it, right? That you can leave a blank spot and uh, go to the mikveh once and write them all in thereafter, or I don't know the uh, actual. You'd, you'd have to ask a cipher. Uh, Faith, I found one online for thirty three thousand dollars at Judaica Embroidery. There you go. Uh, Google uh, Google has it's a sponsored ad, so uh, maybe we can put our pennies together. 
uh, someone else writes price categories vary from 24 grand to 55 grand. Yeah. But I'm sure I can get one for you for more. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, take a good few months minimum uh, to write one. Uh, Because also remember, they do all the sewing together of the parchment. Mm -hmm. And all that in the, stuff. In and the play, making the ink. In the play, all, you know, they have to do all of that. In this play, in God of Vengeance, this particular copy of the Torah um, was partially paid for by someone else who couldn't finish the job. No, no, no. Just in, in my adaptation, both, then. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. That that then some somebody misunderstood something. What happens is at the very end, like if you endow a safer tire, and I found this interesting, uh, the way they, the, the way Ash presented it there, like the cipher will write the whole thing except for the tail very end, right? And because the, the scribe is your agent, uh, it's as if you, the guy that hired him, the person who hired him, is doing it yourself. Sometimes the scribe will actually move your hand along. Other mm. times he'll just finish it in your presence. Uh, so it's as if, you know, he's your worker and you're supervising the job. Uh, so, you know, the Sefer Torah that he's, endow- uh, that he's endowing, that he's buying, this Sefer Torah could have been written up until the very end of Deuteronomy at any point and simply left unfinished until somebody comes along to pay for it. Uh-huh. Hmm. Uh, because, I mean, they don't mention that, oh, you know, finally, finally, finally it's ready. Uh, they just, you know, the thing opens. Today is the, uh, you know, the uh, is the chinuch of the Sefer Torah. Everybody's calling him the Balmachanich and everything, the, the dedicator, the whatever. Uh, of, of the Torah, uh, so it's possible that uh, in the adaptation uh, he either didn't get something or he deliberately changed something. Uh, yeah, I just I haven't I haven't seen it, so I don't know. But you know, you used to be able to go like on uh, back when Essex Street was Essex Street uh, in New York. There were all these, aside from, you know, these scribes who had stores. There were, there were a bunch of them. They were all, like, basically next door to each other. And you could pretty much walk into any of those places and get a safer Torah. Uh, and, you know, I remember going into them. And you'd see, like, there'd be parchment lying all over the place. And, you know, of course, these guys that deal with it all the time, these are simply the tools of their trade. They tend not to have the superstitious reverence Mm -hmm. that, you know, people who see it once a month or once a week or whatever might otherwise feel because they they spend all day writing Sefer Torahs and mezuzahs and tefillin and stuff. Uh, Unfortunately, I think the last of them closed uh, probably six or seven years ago. So they're not there anymore. So I was trying to find uh, if I if I had misread it or if this uh, adaptation had led me astray. And I'm in I'm at a scene which is really fascinating, oh. probably uh, where <laughs> where Jack, the Yonkel character in this particular adaptation, uh, is is compelled to confess all of his sins to the scribe, 
Like, what page are you on, Eric? I'm on page 50 of the Margulis. Act one. Margulis, yeah, yeah. Okay. Act one. End of Act oh, one. And I uh, marked this page as well. And he, um, yeah, it, much to the rabbi's chagrin, the guy who set up the whole deal to connect Yonkel to the scribe, uh, Yonkel is is uh, feels himself compelled to to confess all of his sins right then and there, which might screw up the deal. Well, in the Yiddish, he says he's going to tell him everything, but all he says is, Ich bin a zindika mensch. Yeah. I'm a sinful guy. My wife is a sinful woman. My daughter is pure. She'll deal with the Torah. He even he doesn't even say what business he's in. Mm. Yeah, no, and, and Ellie is kind of around, you know, Ixne on the inner say. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, he cuts him off. There he is about Shiva. This, this man is a penitent. He's uh, is yeah. returning to the ways of the Lord. Yeah. He sits him yeah, right back. And his actually quite and, similar in the translation. And, it, well, the and what's, what I I took that when I was reading the Ellie character, um, who I read as Eli, uh, like I do, that he that he was maybe in it just for the money. Yeah. Since yeah. since there's a lot, he's in it in part for the money. Yeah. <laughs> since there's a large sum of money he's, changing hands, and he stands to gain. His, to take his cut. Well, also, he's the Shatchan. Yeah. Uh, so Meaning. he's going to get paid twice. What's yeah. that? What you know, he's, so, so he's the he's the guy who's he's setting the, up the marriage. Arranging the wedding. Okay. He's so a, well. Yeah. Right. You know, so it's, he, he's... That's not you know, entirely I, clear in the, in the book to me. We yeah, assume he's getting something from the scribe for middling the deal mm-hmm. he's probably getting something since he suggested it to uh the uncle he's probably getting something from yonkel for setting up the deal and then he's going to get money for arranging the marriage yeah so you um, know he's he wins three ways it's it's interesting though in the history of productions if you read uh, uh there was a production with Buloff as uh, jo- Joseph Buloff as Rebelli. Uh, Carrot O'Brien, uh, who plays, will be playing Sora this March, uh, uh, and has herself adapted the play, the famous Showworld version. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she dug up one of the reviews, and uh, they write about Buloff that his rebe- uh, his Rebelli was clearly not in it just for the money. He was in it for the love of making a match. You know, that's a big mila of a shadchan. Is that you know, it's the sport of. Uh, bringing together a wall with a wall, two things that cannot be done. You know, this guy has got to make a match, you know, and, uh, you know, so, so that's a vi- viable reading too. Mm. Uh, but, uh, uh, well, you know, well, you played, uh, I think it show world, didn't you? No, I played the Torah scribe and the Mechutten. Oh, uh, oh you were the scribe. Oh. Yeah. And, so uh, actually, you yeah. Um, actually, did, yes. actually, our rebelli there in English, this guy David Pincus was quite brilliant in the role, and he had a little bit of that spirit of you know he's in it because he's a born matchmaker. He's just got to bring these two things together, you know, like a chemist who then has the lab blow up in his face. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. No, but um, there's something. I mean, you know, even just reading it, uh, there's something really uh, all the edge in us about. Oh, the character. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's slimy. Uh, 
Well, uh, I said that I couldn't play the role because if I did, you know, the, the, the Anti-Defamation League would be uh, protesting <laughs> out in front of the place because, uh, you know, the, the, the guy is a complete used car salesman uh, mm. saying one thing to one person, turning around and saying the opposite to the other, whatever it takes to get this done. Mm. Uh, but there, I guess there can be more charitable takes on it is what I'm saying. Uh, Incidentally, speaking of Bulov and the Vilna Truppe, uh, the the 23 production was not the first time the show was closed down. In Literarische Blätter, uh, literary pages, a uh, famous Yiddish journal from the 20s and 30s, Leib Kadesen, the founder of the Vilna Truppe, uh, talks about a production that they put up in German-occupied Vilna in 1916, uh, that was closed down by the uh, closed down by the Germans. Uh, the Germans were going to this Yiddish theater. They loved it, but uh, the day after that show, when everyone was talking about how beautifully the women in the whorehouse played together, like a, an yeah. officer found out, and he you know he immediately brought the axe down on the production. So uh, oh wow, uh, you know it's it's always those yekas you got to watch yeah, out for. Always the same people. Isn't it? It's always those yekas. Hogan? <laughs> Hogan, are you running a Yiddish theater in there? <laughs> Schultz, did you see the Yiddish theater? Mm. I saw nothing. <laughs> I saw nothing. <laughs> um, incidentally, for further reading, there's uh, uh, David Mazower, the great-grandson of Sholomash and a very fine scholar, uh, is writing an article about Ash. And, and uh, there's other materials, a review of our production by Deborah Kaplan at uh, YiddishStage.org, the digi digital Yiddish theater project. Uh, so that, that could be of interest to people. I definitely will put that in the show notes and, and check it out myself. Thanks so much to Shane, to Faith, and to Michael. That is the end of this episode of Yiddish Book Club in which we discussed the play God of Vengeance. Of course, links to those articles that Shane was mentioning, as well as links to copies of this play, if you wish to read it in Yiddish or in English, are all on the website uh, YiddishBookClub.com. You can also use that website to reach out to us. Did you have any thoughts, feelings, opinions, reflections, or responses? based on our conversation of this play, we would love to hear from you. You can uh, email yiddishbookclub at gmail.com and, and we'll get right back to you. Or you can find us on the Facebook channel. Yiddish Book Club is there on Facebook and you can leave a comment there or uh, send us a message. If you are uh, so inclined, you can even record yourself reading a voice memo into your intelligent phone device and emailing it to that email address yiddishbookclub at gmail.com and uh, if you do that i would uh you know mention whether or not we have permission to use it in the podcast uh thank you so much for listening oh up next on the next episode of yiddish book club we're going to be discussing chaim grada's short story my quarrel with hirsch or which um, i read in english in the A Treasury of Yiddish Stories, edited by Howe and Greenberg. Of course, uh, Faith and Michael and Shane were able to read that story in Yiddish. And boy, 
did they get a lot more out of it than I did because uh, my translation was abridged. So that's why I'm so excited we're going to have that conversation on the next episode because that's why we're doing this work. Um, I want to appreciate Yiddish literature. I can't read the Yiddish language, but I don't feel like that's a good enough reason for me to be left out from the conversation. So, uh, And then following a discussion of Chaim Grada's short story, My Quarrel with Hirsch Rassainer, we're going to be discussing The Life of Gluckel of Hamlin, a fascinating book, a memoir as it is back before books were ever called things like memoirs. I'm reading the translation uh, from the Yiddish into English by Beth Zion Abrahams. That was what was recommended to me by the producers and hosts of Yiddish Book Club. So really looking forward to that conversation coming up on a future episode. Subscribe to the podcast uh, via iTunes on Stitcher. If you're subscribing to the podcast and it's not on your podcast platform of choice, feel free to reach out to me and tell me, hey, I love podcast platform of, of your choice and wish that Yiddish Book Club was available there. Please do the work. Do the 35 minutes of work, Eric Klein, producer, to get it up. And I will. I'll do it. I'll listen. So you can email me, yiddishbookclub at gmail.com. You can leave a comment on the website, yiddishbookclub.com, where you can find us on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next time. If you didn't want this for your daughter, this is the thing that's always driven me crazy about this play. If you don't want your daughter to turn into a hooker, get two houses. (laughs) 